Welcome to Critical Issues Commentary, the podcast ministry of Gospel of Grace Fellowship, a non-denominational Christian church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. This is Jessica Kramis, your host for today. We have a message by Pastor Eric Dauma that is titled, A Tale of Two Cities, The World Builds Babylon. This is part two of the message, and he is going to be discussing the situation in the world today and the strong push for a one-world system without national borders. Here's Pastor Eric. Now, some might say, well, Eric, you're just talking about this Old Testament text, and after all, we're New Covenant Christians. But I want you to see that God is depicted in both the Old and the New Covenant as creating multiple nations with multiple borders. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts 17, verses 25 through 26. Acts 17, 25 through 26. Now, as you turn there, remember here Paul is preaching to these pagans at the Areopagus. And so listen to what he says. He's talking about God and his nature. Acts 17, 25, it says, Nor is he, that's God, served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made, notice verse 26, he made from one man, that's Adam, every nation, notice nations, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. The boundaries there is the borders. So God ordained what? One nation, one rule, one order? No, multiple nations, multiple boundaries for the restraint of evil. Because human beings are so sinful, if we ever have absolute power, we end up getting absolute corruption. That's the way it is. So that's why God gives us many boundaries, many nations, to subdue the evil inclinations of man. That's it. That's the worldview. You and I have to know that believing in a one-world order is not a morally neutral belief. Desiring a one-world order makes one stand in moral opposition to the way that God rules over his creation. That's what you and I have to understand. Now, what I want to do is give four biblical principles, and I want to relate it to what we've just seen the last few months. The last few months, what I'm claiming is we've seen a shift from a biblical ethos to what I would refer to, I'm coining this, a Babylonian ethos. Now, what do I mean by that? Again, I'm not claiming America was ever a Christian nation. There's only one nation that ever will belong to God, and that's Israel, according to Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10. But America did have what I would refer to as a biblical ethos, because many people were believers in America. And so in America, we believe that, yes, there should be many nations, many boundaries. That was the old order of things. But that is being rejected by those who now want a one-world system. That's what we're seeing. So in this past election, we had a president who wanted multiple nations, multiple borders, and he was tossed out in a coup by those who want a one-world order under the Babylonian ethos. And the reason that happened is because those who did it are Marxists. Now let me explain, why does Karl Marx... What does that have to do with wanting a one-world system? Well, Karl Marx is a religious man. Where did he come up with his ideas? Well, some of them came from Hegel, but he made a lot of them up in his head. 
1848, Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto. And in that Communist Manifesto, he longed for the day where people would no longer identify with nations, but rather they would only identify according to class, the proletariat. And that's why at the end of the Communist Manifesto, it says, workers of the world unite, all you have to lose are your shackles. Here's why. If you identify as an American, if that's where you find your identity, or a German or a Frenchman, you're not going to identify as the have-not, the proletariat, to wage war against the bourgeoisie, the haves, in order to bring about this kingdom that Karl Marx promised would one day come as a result of his teachings. So if you have national identity, you don't identify as the proletariat. So we have to get rid of this national identity so that we can become what? A one world order. That's what happened the last few months. Now, the proof of this, let me lay out a little bit. It'll be somewhat political, but it's really religious. Let me explain. Donald Trump, I did some research into his background. You know, his father was a disciple of Norman Vincent Peale. I'm not a big fan of Norman Vincent Peale. I know Bob knows who that is. Norman Vincent Peale was, I believe, a false teacher. Norman Vincent Peale taught a prosperity gospel. It was this positive power of thinking. If you think something, you can conceive it into being. So he was really one of the word of faith teachers in the early 20th century. But the one thing Norman Vincent Peale really had going for him, as far as something good, I would say, is that he was a rabid anti-communist. He hated communism. That's the way the Trump family has always been. In fact, in the early 2000s, Donald Trump wrote about the importance of nations in borders. I'll maybe cite that in our third session. But I want you to contrast with that with those who stood against him. Those who stood against him are hardcore communists, and we have to know that. For example, Nellie Orr. How many have heard of the name Nellie Orr? Nellie Orr was hired by the Democrat Party to run opposition against Donald Trump. Nellie Orr was the one who crafted the steel dossier that was used to launch the Russia collusion investigation against Donald Trump. Do you know where Nellie Orr used to teach? At Vassar College, and she was what I would refer to as a Stalin apologist. When Stalin had his dekulikization, which was the murder of the Ukrainians by the millions, she apologized for it by saying, hey, you have to, after all, if you're going to make an omelet, crack a few eggs, much like Lenin said. She's a Stalin apologist. That's who was responsible for penning the steel dossier that was used to oust a sitting president. How many in here have ever heard of John Brennan, the former CIA director? Well, he's a communist. In the 1970s, he supported a candidate named Gus Hall. Gus Hall was born here in Minnesota, up towards Eveleth, Minnesota. Gus Hall, I'll show you a quote in our third week, he wanted to murder every Christian in the United States, wants us dead. That's who Gus Hall is. You know, when you were a communist back in the 80s and 90s, you couldn't get a security clearance. But under Obama, he became the head of the CIA. Strobe Talbot. How many have ever heard of Strobe Talbot? Strobe Talbot was the roommate to Bill Clinton. Strobe Talbot's job was to be a go-between between Steele, who was lying about the president, and the Democrat Party. 
He was the one who was kind of making sure that the setup job was going to happen. Well, Strobe Talbot is a committed communist. Listen to what he says on how he wanted a one-world order. This is from an article he wrote called The Birth of the Global Nation back in Time Magazine, July 1992. This is what he longs for, Strobe Talbot. It says, quote, I long for a nationhood as we know it to be obsolete. All states will recognize a single global authority, unquote. That's who was setting up the president who likes multiple nations and multiple borders. So for all of Trump's foibles and failures, the one thing that we can say is he stood for multiple nations, multiple borders, and those who were standing against him said, no, we want a one-world order. So says directly Strobe Talbot himself. James Comey, head of the FBI, do you know who his favorite theologian is? Reinhold Niebuhr. Reinhold Niebuhr is a Marxist. Reinhold Niebuhr in the 20th century wanted to demythologize the Bible. Reinhold Niebuhr was one who was the precursor, the, he's part of the New Orthodox movement, it's the precursor to the emerging church. That's what Reinhold Niebuhr is, he's a Marxist. So all the way through, all those who are standing against a man who's the president who likes multiple nations with multiple borders are one world order people. Now, let me address a couple of objections. First of all, I want to address the objection that we shouldn't be talking like this. That we're, after all, we're getting into political things and not religious things. I would say the exact opposite is true. That what we're talking about is religion and not politics. Let me ask you this. Was the first Babylon that was ever built, was it a political issue or a religious issue there? It's religious, isn't it? Is Karl Marx really a political leader or a religious one? I'd say he's religious. Where do his ideas come from? What source of revelation was he given? It came from his own mind. It comes from Hegel and Feuerbach and other philosophers. These are just religious men. So think of this analogy. Let's say someday that one of the major parties in the United States is taken over by Jehovah Witnesses. And if, if that happened, could we no longer talk about the doctrines of Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah Witnesses? Well, of course not. So why give that freedom, or I should say that leeway, to Karl Marx? No, we should talk about it. This is a religious issue, ultimately not a political one. Second, people will say, well, if this is ordained by God, this one world order, why stand against it? Why speak out against it? Well, realize that the Bible teaches something called compatibilism. Compatibilism is where, yes, God is sovereign, but at the same time, humans are culpable. God is completely sovereign, humans are completely irresponsible, and there is no contradiction. Let me illustrate that from the scriptures. In Matthew 26, remember Jesus says that the Son of Man would go as it had been predetermined. I can never say that. Meaning what? That he was going to be betrayed. It was predicted he would be betrayed. Remember uh, Zechariah eleven twelve is going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and he was. But Jesus says, woe to the man who does it. So God is sovereign. Yes, it's going to happen, but woe to the man who does it. In the same way, yes, this world system will come about. God is going to allow it for his good and his glory, but woe to those who do it. Woe to those who do it. 
So, dear ones, you and I, I think as Christians, have to have our eyes wide open and be able to speak out against these things. Now, let me give you some further contrasts that I think we're intended to see here. Another contrast is in the old biblical ethos of governmental system, really that founded the Western world, is God ordains government. And he ordains government to restrain evil. Why? Because men and women are made in the image of God. That's the institution of government can be seen in Genesis 9-6. If a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. That's the institution of government. What's government's role? To restrain evil. That is now being rejected with this new one world Babylonian ethos for government is God. So government is no longer going to restrain evil. It's going to redistribute wealth. And under Marxism, there are no other gods than the state. Oh yes, Karl Marx is a jealous god. And everywhere where Marxism is prospered, they do not allow any other gods. Yes, they are the most religious people on the planet, and they have murdered more people than anyone on the planet. Government becomes God. Third contrast, in the old biblical ethos, it's just been jettisoned. God defined human worth. You and I are valuable as human beings, not because we do something, but simply because we exist as image bearers of God. That is now being jettisoned for the state defines your worth. And if you can't contribute, you can die. If those who are willing to kill babies take over, do you think that they'll spare the elderly? No. Or will they spare anyone else? No. That's what's at stake. Fourth contrast. In the old biblical ethos of governance, man worships the creator. Mankind is free. He doesn't worship the government. He's to worship the creator. But in this new biblical, or excuse me, Babylonian ethos, which is contradictory to the biblical one, man worships the creation. And I'm going to talk about that in our third week. Yes, they're going to worship the creation through their desire to be green and the deep ecological movement, but ultimately they're going to worship themselves. I remember there was a president back in 2008 who said, we're the ones we've been waiting for. And how much does that sound like in Genesis 11:4? let us make a name for ourselves. That's who these people are. The one world system of Babylon, they're desiring to build again. Let me show you this desire at the end of the Communist Manifesto. It says, in short, this is at, right at the end, it says, in short, the communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. Dear ones, let me point on the screen. The existing order of things that we just had was a biblical ethos that has now been jettisoned for the Babylonian ethos, and you saw it happen almost overnight. Why, what responsibility do you and I have? Well, you and I are to be salt and light in our world, and I think you and I have to have eyes that are open and to say, yes, this idea of having a one-world order and reject multiple nations and multiple boundaries, that is not a morally neutral idea. And we have to be equipped to say, this is evil and it's rebellion against God. Dear ones, if we don't speak out, who else will? If the salt doesn't have its preserving salty effect anymore in the culture, 
the culture will just decay further and further. Dear ones, I want to talk a little bit about, at the end here, what ultimately motivates Babylon. And I'm going to claim that it's ultimately Satan who stands behind it. Let me do a little walk through Isaiah with you. In Isaiah chapter 13, God explains that one day he's going to throw Babylon down. The Babylon that's in our future, the Babylon that's going to be built by whoever builds it, whether, whether it's the Marxist or whatever religion, if it, there's another religion that comes in the future. He's going to throw it down. That's the last part, excuse me, it's the first part of Isaiah 13. I don't have a slide for it. couldn't fit it all in here. But what's very interesting is to prove that God will one day throw down the future Babylon. The last half of Isaiah 13, God proves that he'll do it in his day. That is in the prophet Isaiah's day. That is, he would throw down Babylon at the hands of the Medo-Persians in 539 B.C. Now, why am I telling you this? Because in the prophets, there's always a near and the far. God is always going to throw down the far-day Babylon But what he says is, I'm going to prove it to you by showing that I'm good to judge the near-term Babylon. So whether it was Babylon that happened in Genesis 11, or Babylon that happens in Nebuchadnezzar's day, or the future Babylon, God is going to throw it down. Why? Because the one who ultimately stands behind Babylon is Satan. And that's where we pick it up here in Isaiah 14. Notice what it says, Isaiah 14, 4, and verses 12 through 13. This is when Israel's in their land and God gives them rest. He says, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. Now, One of the big debates in this text, is this text about the king of Babylon or is it about Satan? And I'm going to answer it by saying, yes. (laughs) It's not either or, it's both and. Let me explain why. First of all, notice here this term taunt, mashal, in Hebrew. It can be rendered taunt, but it also can be rendered a proverb. The great scholar in Isaiah, J. Alec Motyer, he prefers the latter. The idea that it would be rendered a proverb. And the reason why is the way it's used often throughout the Old Testament, it's it's a proverb that reveals the inner truth of something. So my analogy is this. Think of this analogy. How many here saw the Wizard of Oz once in your life? Every time I saw that, I always had an earache when I was a kid. I don't know what it was. I was sick, had an earache. So as soon as I see the Wizard of Oz, my ear starts bothering me. Now I don't know what it's all about. But think, think about the Wizard of Oz. Remember, at a certain point in the movie, the curtain is pulled back and you see that old, ugly guy and he's behind the scenes and he's running the strings of everything? That's what the mashal does. The proverb reveals that the one who's ultimately behind the king of Babylon is Satan. The curtain is pulled back. So the king of Babylon has the same desires as Satan himself because Satan is inciting him. And so that's why it says... Notice in verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. Star of the morning is literally the shining one. That's a reference to an angelic being. It's where we get a term for Lucifer. It's a shining one. It's an angelic being. So this king of Babylon wants to be like one of the angels that were being worshipped at Babel. Who is inciting that? Well, the chief of the demonic realm, Satan. 
Notice, who is it that weakened the nations? Yes, it's the king of Babylon, literally, but it's also Satan, literally, who weakens the nations. Notice in verse 3, what's the boast? I will raise up my throne above the stars of God. That's claiming that they are going to rule over God's angelic realm and supplant God himself. What was the first boast at Babel? They're going to make a name for themselves. What's the first sin in the garden? You will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Dear ones, ultimately the one who incites Babylon is Satan himself. That's who's inspiring this desire for a one-world system. And so that's why, dear brothers and sisters, we should stand against it. No, God has ordained his rule over his creation by having multiple nations in multiple boundaries. The desire for a one-world system is an incitement by Satan himself, just like the original incitement that happened at Babel. That's what we see very clearly, I think, in the scriptures. Now, let me turn to this final slide. You don't have it. I'll give that to you next week so you have the material. I didn't know if I could fit it in. It's a chiastic structure. It's a chiasm. This is how Isaiah structures Isaiah chapter 24 all the way to the end of 27. Can you imagine if you did a research paper in college and you said, well, here's my outline? You'd get an A++. This is astonishing. This chiasm, it's magnificent. This is how Isaiah just structures one of his sections, and it shows us some of the profundity of Scripture, that this is inspired by the Spirit. Now, what happens in a chiasm is there's often contrasts and parallels. For example, there will be a contrast between section A here and section A here. So let me just begin there. I won't go through the whole thing. But in Isaiah 24, there's going to be a harvest of the destroyed world. And so the idea there is one day there's going to be Babylon built. In fact, in Isaiah 24.10, it's called the city of chaos, and it's going to be thrown down. God is going to harvest himself a judgment against his enemies. And it's Babylon. That's his harvest. He's going to judge them. But that's contrasted down here in Isaiah 27 with a harvest that's good because it's a harvest of his people as he brings them into the kingdom of what? Israel. Here he harvests his enemies, throws down Babylon. Here he harvests for good his people. He brings the kingdom of Israel. That's the contrast. Now, for the sake of time, let me go to the middle. Notice here you have a song of the ruined city. Here are the saints, those who belong to God by faith in Jesus Christ. And they're going to give him honor, praise, and glory. And they're going to sing his praises for throwing down what? Babylon. He was powerful to save this mighty God. The God who brought Israel out of Egypt. He's mighty to save. And he's going to have no trouble in throwing down Babylon. But notice there, that's contrasted with another song of the redeemed. And this time they're singing, not of the destruction of Babylon, but of the strong city of Jerusalem and how God will establish it forevermore. And what is the pinnacle of the whole section? It's Mount Zion. It's Mount Zion. Why? Because that's where Jesus Christ is going to reign forever. Dear ones, I entitled my whole message series, The Tale of Two Cities. The Tale of Two Cities. What city wins? It's Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and Babylon is going to be destroyed. So I want to leave you here this morning by asking the question, what city will you live for? Are you going to live for Babylon, the fleeting pleasures of sin, and the world that's fleeting and going away? Or are you going to live for Jerusalem? 
I want to give the gospel here this morning the good news. The good news is about who Christ is and what he's done. But I always tell people the good news of the gospel only makes sense in light of the bad news. If you don't know the bad news, you don't know what you're being saved from. The bad news that's revealed in Scripture is that all of us have a rebellious heart like those at Babel. That all of us have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. In fact, in Romans 3.23, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, you know the news gets worse? It says the wages of sin is death. Not just temporary death, but when you unpack all of Scripture, it's eternal death away from God in the lake of fire. But that's where the good news shines. In light of that really bad news, the good news is that God sent forth His Son, the Son who existed as God and with God from all eternity, at a point in history, through the virgin birth, became a man. Truly man, truly God in one person. And He was truly man and truly God because He had to live the perfect life that none of us could. Never rebelled, never sinned. Tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. But Jesus didn't just live the perfect life. He also died a substitutionary death. Jesus the just on behalf of us the unjust in order that he might bring us to God. In order that we might have forgiveness of sins. Why? Because Jesus paid off our debt in full on the cross. This Jesus, the proof that he did these things for us is seen by the fact that on the third day after his death, he was bodily raised from the dead. His resurrection bodily proves all of his claims. When Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him, we can believe it. Why? He was raised from the dead. But this Jesus is also, he ascended into the heavens, he's seated at the right hand of God from where he's coming again to come and judge his enemies and destroy Babylon, but to save his people and establish Jerusalem. What must we do? Well, this Jesus doesn't give a helpful hint. He gives a command. And the command is to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance is a turning of our minds and a turning of our life from idolatry to God on his terms. So maybe there's someone here today that may be an atheist or a Buddhist or a Hindu or whatever religion you're into, turn from those things and turn to God on his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. If you will trust upon Jesus Christ, you have the promise of the forgiveness of sins and that you'll be a partaker of this glorious kingdom centered in Mount Zion and that you will reign there forevermore in a resurrected body with Christ all the way through even to the eternal states. That's the promise that we see in the scriptures. Today is the day to repent, trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, become a partaker of Jerusalem and flee Babylon. You've been listening to Pastor Eric Dama of Gospel of Grace Fellowship. Please come back next week for part three of this series where he discusses the future of Babylon. We are out of time for this edition of Critical Issues Commentary Radio. You can access this episode and many others as well as years worth of articles at the website cicministry.org. While you're there, click on contact and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. We want to remind you to stand firm in one spirit with one mind and strive together for the faith of the gospel. For Critical Issues Commentary, this is Jessica Kramus. You are hearing from Pastor Eric Dauma, and we will see you next week.